Turb Alpert and Timo Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it occurs in this case on a Tuesday. It's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. A particular note on this edition of the program, a shockingly coherent program, an accidentally coherent program concerning the topic of buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse. It appears that the Boston Red Sox, after a couple years ago, giving Rusny Castillo, Cuban defector Rusny Castillo, a seven-year contract, decided to enter the 2016 season with a platoon of Brock Holt and Chris Young in left field, rendering Castillo a fifth outfielder for the team. He's a trade candidate. Where will he go? Probably the Padres. Maybe the Padres, says Dave Cameron. Probably the Padres. The Baltimore Orioles spent considerably less on Korean outfielder Hyun Soo Kim, and yet the emergence of Joey Ricard has rendered Kim a bit player in the Orioles' plans for 2016. Cameron opines on the likely outcome of that particular situation as well. Clinging desperately to this narrative of buyer's remorse, I asked Cameron to re-examine the trade which sent Jesus Montero to the Seattle Mariners in exchange for Michael Pineda. Montero, of course, was recently waived by the Seattle Mariners, claimed shortly thereafter by the Toronto Blue Jays. It's generally accepted within baseball that there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. To what degree does the presence or the outcome or the career trajectory of Jesus Montero suggest that maybe there's no such thing as a hitting prospect either? Not that much, actually, is what Cameron suggests. But it's a provocative question. Finally, I chastise Cameron for having forced not only myself, but also other Fangraphs writers to have written long, grueling posts as part of the positional power rankings. Which, for whatever their merits, difficult. It's difficult stuff. All of that scalding hot content to follow. But first, it's my pleasure to provide a sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek. Listen, hey, you ever found it difficult, frustrating to buy tickets online? You have a ticket locked in at a certain price, and then you go to the checkout area online, and you find that the fees have been attached. I've been led to believe that SeatGeek does not truck in that sort of dirty dealing. No dirty deals at SeatGeek. And they've made it easier than ever to buy sports and concert tickets. There's another thing I've been led to believe. I've actually just spent a couple minutes at SeatGeek.com myself just now before recording this introduction. And I found tickets for the second game of the Boston Red Sox home opening series, the second game of that series, for $10. It's very difficult, typically, to find Red Sox tickets, in particular the home opening series, for $10. But you can do it at SeatGeek.com. And as an idiot, I don't claim to know precisely how they do it, but I've been led to believe that it has something to do with the fact that they, what they do is they pull tickets available at other sites. They pull it into one space. So you save time and that you never have to miss a deal. If a deal's, if a deal's available, SeatGeek.com will let you know about it. You can also set alerts and you can find out when ticket prices fall. Here's another feature of SeatGeek. They will give you a grade based on the value of a ticket. So you can find underpriced seats. And in order to ensure that you will be satisfied with the ticket, you can actually see a view from your seat using technology from the 21st century. I guess that's how they do it. And finally, as I've mentioned, the ticket prices are always listed. So unlike a site like StubHub, for example, unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end so that you're never surprised. And um, I don't know if this is the best part, but this is certainly our part. Listeners of Fangraphs Audio receive a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you do it. Here's how you get $20 on your first ticket. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You download the app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Add a promo code. You enter the following promo code, just the word Fangraphs, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, Fangraphs. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download that free SeatGeek app. Enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today. Or if not today, soon. Do it soon, please. Do it soon. It does benefit the site. Thank you very much. And that, uh, well, having said that, that ends the sponsor's message and brings us to the end of this introduction. What is it? It is FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of FANGRAPHS, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. something that it's uh, neither i'm going to say it's neither here nor there but uh, it might amuse you which is that 
Um, of course, you know that Easter was this past weekend. I do know that. And uh, it's not uh, part of the Eastern mythology in the U.S. is that the Easter bunny, the Easter rabbit, brings candy for children, yeah? Bunny, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard it called an Easter rabbit. Yeah, I think you might be right. Easter bunny, the Easter bunny does that. <clears throat> I want you to know that in France, there is no Easter bunny. Uh, instead, a bell delivers candy to the children. Like something you would ring when you want service? A roaming bell, yeah, such as you might find in a church steeple. Hmm. In, a, in a belfry would, is where you find a bell. So it's an anthropomorphized bell. Right. So I see what you're saying. You, on the, you say, well, this is strange, a bell delivering candy to children. But then it causes one to reflect upon um, the improbability of a little of a tiny rabbit delivering candy to children everywhere as well. Yeah, but I mean, animals are at least capable of movement. Yeah. Like they have legs and pulses and heartbeats and blood. That's a good point. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how the bell gets around. Like, yeah. Yes. No, I think it just flies. It flies from Rome. A flying bell. It's a flying bell from Rome. It comes from Rome. That's point. It's a good point. There is no real allowance. There's no suggestion of how it carries the candy or anything like that. Right. Is this like, maybe evidence that the French have too much wine? Like perhaps this uh, this it, particular mythology was not created while sober. It well. Okay. So a couple points regarding that. First of all, up until the the beginning of the 20th century, you. Water, potable water was not widely available. And so you know, people spent the majority of the day drunk. <laughs> Out of necessity? Well, what do you drink if you can't drink water? Mm, uh, I guess wine is the next best option. Wine and beer, yeah, because they're alcoholic and they um, fewer whatever, the bacteria, whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, good, if you, good science there. Fewer yeah, bacteria yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> so people, people really – the 20th century is the first one in which people were not completely uh, drunk all the time. Mm. This seems like not an accurate reflection of history. Like I didn't hear Dan Carlin's uh, seven-hour uh, expose on just all-time drunkness. Well, look forward to it. The other point okay. I would make is this, is that um, we, uh, my, when my wife and I, we were just in France. We did stay for a weekend with a couple, the husband of which couple is a doctor, and he said that in France – uh, the, among the French medical community up until recently, uh, you, one was only considered an alcoholic if he or she drank more than a liter of wine a day. That's a lot. That's a lot of wine. Yeah. <laughs> Every day? Every day, yes. Every day. <clears throat> yeah. I would have a lower standard for alcoholism personally. Yeah, I think, well, that's probably true and there are probably other things to consider, but that, I found it, I found it heartening. Did you, like, set that as a bar to try and clear? Yeah, I, said, like, well, I take is... that as a personal challenge. Well, he knew someone who's now dead. He knew someone who drank seven liters of wine a day. Did, did they die of liver poisoning? Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah they died. Okay. So guy, he died. Well, he this guy the died. The other option, I guess, was car accident. But. Right. This guy died in his 50s. And I said, well, maybe if he had, if he had only um, consumed half that wine – Per day, he would have lived twice as long, which I think is an example of flawless reasoning. <laughs> this is why we don't let you create formulas on the site. Yeah, probably smart. Um, okay, let me ask you a question with regard to Rusni Castillo. Okay. And At least this is a uh, slightly more topical uh, choice than last week's podcast. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, uh, there, was some, there was some feedback last week. I don't know if you saw yeah. about the uh, – the, the obscurity the, of it? Yeah, the, the stooliness of the, the, of the discussions, yeah. I'm not too worried about it. Well, I'm interested <laughs> in – because the news regarding Rusni Castillo and, and Boston's uh, potential ambition to – well, it was certainly their intent on not starting him uh, to begin the season, right? It appears as though Brock Holt and Chris Young will split, uh, will split a platoon. Uh, that seems to be at least how they're going to begin the year, yeah. Okay. Which leaves Rusni Castillo without regular playing time, regular full time. Yeah, I mean, he would have to basically hope that Jackie Bradley or Mookie Betts got hurt. Right, which is dark. Those are dark feelings to have. And he probably doesn't want that to be the reason that he earns a spot in the Major League roster. Yeah, um, but I wouldn't put it past him. No, okay. People are selfish. <clears throat> people are, well, people, yeah. But he's, oh, of course, he does have his money. It's guaranteed contract, right? Was it seven years what? Uh, well, I think he got 72 million. Of that, he's already gotten 15 million or so. So, right. so he's not hurting, one assumes. 
this point. No, but I think, uh, you know, you would assume that professional pride and uh, sure. the desire to succeed would drive him as well. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. And, uh, and, um, um, and then there's, but there's a similar case, not a, not a totally similar case, but it has, has similar qualities to it, uh, regarding Hyun Soo Kim. Hyun Soo Kim, I believe I'm saying almost correctly. Sure. It's in the ballpark, at least. Right. Baseball metaphor. Like all of Hyun Soo Kim's hits, which <laughs> two of them go over the fence. Right. Because, uh, so, so Kim has had a, what, a rough, a rough spring for the Orioles? Yeah. I think he's hitting like 150 with no power. Right. And, uh, he was signed, I don't know. What do you what estimate? Two two years, seven million. Two years, seven million. Oh, so that's that's not as much of an investment. Yeah, much smaller. But there's um, but there are, there is talk uh, that the Orioles might have some interest in sending him back to South Korea. Yeah, they are having significant buyer's remorse. Right. Uh, they're basically like my wife in the scenario where they purchase something and then immediately start thinking about sending it back and like rebuying it or returning it. Uh, Dan Duquette is basically. Uh, is basically channeling my wife with how often he can uh, or how quickly he can return something that he purchased. Has your wife ever practiced something? And perhaps um, Dan Duquette should have done a similar thing, which is to essentially buy it in your imagination, and then uh, you don't have to go through all the tedious process of returning the same item. But I think she really enjoys the uh, anticipation of its arrival. Yeah. So, like the time between when the money is spent and when the item shows up is exciting for her. And then once it arrives and that excitement goes away, then she realizes she doesn't actually want the thing. She just wanted the excitement of waiting for the thing. Yeah. So, so the reality of it is what is uh, what what she finds crippling. Yeah. It's like I think Dan Duquette was like very excited about the idea of having like an Asian left fielder, but then he actually had one. He's like, meh. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, so here I guess one thing I'm interested in uh, just before we get to those two players specifically, or you know more, more specifically, is would can you think of uh, historically players who have lost uh, favor with their team as as quickly as these two, as quickly as Castillo, and I guess in, in particular Kim. Although I would say balancing it between the size of the investment and the amount of interest lost. Uh, I mean, maybe some of the Yankees, uh, and their international spending from about a decade ago, uh, was it, uh, Kei Agawa, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. pretty quickly became not, not a, someone the Yankees were super high on. <laughs> they spent 30 or 40 million dollars to bring Kei Agawa over from Japan, and he was pretty bad. Uh, I know Hideki Arabu had like a good start, but he was turned into Hideki Irabu pretty fast. Right. Wait, um, was, it, was Agawa the one who continued to play for the Yankees double Double yeah, a I think affiliate. he pitched in like double A for a while, making like eight or nine million a year. Right, like for a while, I, yeah. I believe there was a New Yorker article, uh, or maybe it was a Times article, uh, covering him, in which he was living because he had means. Certainly, he was living in a in a, like a New York high rise on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And he had a pers- he had a private driver that would take him out. I think, if I'm not mistaken, to Scranton. I thought it was Trenton. Oh, it maybe it was to Trenton. One of the two. Right. Anyways, he was going. It to ended a different- in a ton. It yeah. Was some it, kind of ton. Yeah. He's going to a different state. Yeah, it could, it could very well have been Trenton. You could be a Trenton Thunder, perhaps. Um, although they might have, they might have at one time played in Scranton Wilkesbury. Yeah, he could have done both. He could have gone from one ton to the other. Well, it's also possible that if uh, if he played for one or the other, but there was a game in the second that he, you know, I said, well, that's not much further. Yeah, right. Let's just keep going. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I've already a, got the driver. So. That's an, and in fact, in fact, it, the in fact he played both for Scranton and Trenton. So there we are. Can I uh, point out that you've taken a topical story and turned it into a, an obscure discussion on players that no one has cared, no one cares about? Well, I guess it, no, but no, but the, I'm curious in this in the right the buyer's remorse. Yeah, I guess this is what we're dealing with, right? Is uh, it, I don't know to what extent the, the Red Sox are dealing with it, but I mean, I think we could actually argue that like maybe the Red Sox last year had Pablo Sandoval buyer's remorse very quickly as well, and Hanley Ramirez buyer's remorse. This has been like a pretty common thing in Boston lately. Rick Porcello buyer's remorse. I think all of these things happened a year ago. Because it was the because the, the Red Sox extended, um, sorry, they extended. Well, they traded Justin Upton for him, which didn't, you know, like Upton had a pretty good year, and then they ended up playing Hanley Ramirez on left field to replace Upton. So there was like a. Cool, uh, Cespedes, kind of a, Cespedes. Oh, yes, right. Yeah, Cespedes, Upton, they're the same. Actually, same, similar, same uh, similar skill set, right? High strikeouts, yeah, high... Right. Uh, yeah. Um, probably better than average corner outfielders, not center right. fielders, though. Yeah. yeah, and they were both free agents this winter. Right, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I think the decision to trade Cespedes and then 
replace him with Hanley Ramirez and then extend Rick Porcello. That like series of decisions, I think Boston, especially their fans, uh, instantly regretted right. or very close to instantly. Yeah. And I guess, uh, I mean, in terms of other signs, it, it probably doesn't happen in the draft that often, right? Because there's always, you always have like at least a year where, unless a player, you know, it frequently happens. With, I guess it's more likely to happen with pitchers. Like you Brady Aiken, maybe? <laughs> well, Brady Aiken. But I guess with, with draftees, you always have a year in which to say, well, he's just having trouble, uh, he's having trouble, um, you know, adjusting to professional competition, something like that. Right. Unless you don't sign him. Unless you don't sign him. The, yeah. uh, it's possible, I know that, um, of course, Dan Farnsworth just released his list for the Mariners, and, um, and just this afternoon, Chris Mitchell posted his, his Cato, um, companion piece, Cato projections, and Alex Jackson, who I think was in the conversation to be a number one overall pick a couple years ago. He, he was considered one of the best, uh, talents in that draft, yeah. Right, and he's had he's had a, a very he's difficult terrible. time adjusting. He has been terrible. Yeah. Right, and he I'm glad one, see one fifty in a ball. See, that's I'm glad you you adjust your language a little bit. You said he has been terrible, which is yeah, I right. Think that's he, fair. There is some chance that he could not be terrible in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually, people who hit one fifty in a ball, not big leaguers, usually. Usually, yeah, usually. But, <clears throat> so that I don't know if that uh, I don't know if that's buyer if there's an instance of buyer's remorse there. I mean, there are a lot of draft there are a lot of draft picks that don't pan out however yeah i think that one might be like buyer's remorse on the player development staff <laughs> like how did we take a guy who was universally lauded as a uh as a really good hitting prospect and turn him into this right <laughs> that's like the worst magic trick isn't it it's uh yeah i think you're right it's like a uh, reverse magic yeah so all right so let's we're, 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 um if, if any more of these cases come up i'd like to address them but let's let's discuss rosny castillo specifically right uh, what was the? I know that I was looking back at. Uh, I think Kylan McDaniel had put a 55 um, future value yeah. on Rosny Castillo, and right. w- so the, the Red Sox weren't crazy to give him a decent amount of money. There were a lot of people that thought he was a decent outfielder. Right, and of course uh, this is, uh, and we're still sort of in the, in this time, but when the time when very few, uh, very few even large contracts, which had been given to uh, to Cuban defectors, uh, turned out badly. Right, I think uh, up to last year, or maybe I guess it was the year before, but the kind of the performances were last year with Yuzwani Tomas and Rusni Castillo, we hadn't really had a high-profile Cuban bust for a while. Basically, all of the, you know, Jose Abreu, Yasiel Puig, um, all the guys who had come out in the last few years had significantly exceeded expectations, which I think led to a pretty quick rise in the prices for Cuban players as teams realized that, you know, maybe these guys were better than they were projecting until they ran into Yasmani Tomas and Rusni Castillo. Right. And, and, of course, Jose Abreu was another success story along the yeah, same I, line. I think I said him, didn't I? Yeah, I just want to emphasize. You just want to re-say Jose Abreu's name? Did you say you went a Cespedes? I didn't say Cespedes. There you go. How about but, yeah, there had been, been a good run of, like, five or six guys who had turned out very well. Right. And then, um, and it, right, and then it, not not so much with Yosemite Tomas, and you mentioned one other name, I think, of a player. Rusni Castillo. Right, Rusni Castillo, about okay. whom we're speaking That's right now. Right. Yeah. And so I guess, well, so, and and now, what is the uh, what is the argument against him going and playing in the minors? Well, I think he doesn't want to. Okay. For, first of all, uh, so if you have a guy making ten or eleven million dollars a year, it's it's a little bit awkward uh, if the player is resistant. And uh, you are trying to get him to develop. If he is if he is frustrated and not actually putting in the effort, it seems unlikely to um, help his development. So Alan Craig, another Boston buyer's remorse uh, option from recent times, uh, has had a similar thing where Alan Craig's making a lot of money and he's been a minor leaguer now for basically a year a year and change, and it hasn't helped him at all. And I think the Red Sox. Uh, probably do not expect that if they send Rusni Castillo to the minors that he will take it very well or that it will help his development. Right, and he is what? He's going to he's his age 28. 20, yeah, his yeah, yeah. age 28 season, right. So there's... Um, like facing, you know, journeyman minor leaguers is not going to teach him how to hit big league pitching. Uh, what do we know about development for Cuban players once they arrive in the States? Because, I mean, perhaps there's just not enough data to, to look at it um, in a responsible way or to to provide an answer responsible way. But we know that um, there could be a great deal of raw talent and even some polish. But at the same time, the level of competition in the Cuban league is 
uh, widely varied. I mean, you have obviously some uh, some amazing players, uh, but I know that, for example, uh, having watched some of the games, that frequently you come across pitchers who, uh, you know, are sitting in the mid-80s at best. Yeah, Jared Weavers. Yeah, right, right, but Jared Weaver, I'm sure he would actually do uh, quite well in Cuba. Quite well in Cuba, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, would, he would be one of the best pitchers down there. So, but, uh, so yeah, you, so what, what is it? Is there anything known, even maybe just anecdotally, about about helping, about facilitating improvement for Cuban players who've come over, you know, especially after playing in the Cuban League almost exclusively? Yeah, it seems like uh, most of the guys who've come over who have not been big league ready have not turned out all that well. So I think like Puig spent what half a season in the minors, and he was uh, young, younger. He right? was right; he was 21 at that point, I think, and he was. Pretty clearly major league ready when he was in the minors. He destroyed the minor leagues. This wasn't necessarily like he was improving while he was down there. He was just blasting the cover off the ball before the Dodgers were like, okay, you're ready, and they called him up. But you look at almost all the other guys who've been signed, uh, especially in the last couple of years, uh, what, Arizbel, Arabuena. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, right. He was like a crack like, defender, right? But well, yeah, not a he was lot. supposed to be, and then he wasn't even that good, and he couldn't hit at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and Roberto Baldequin with the Angels, uh, and then Juan Lopez with the Diamondbacks. Um, the guys who've been signed kind of as like Cuban prospects. I think the only one I can think that maybe panned out a little bit is like Leonis Martin, um, mm-hmm. who spent some time in the minors before the Rangers called him up, but his career hasn't gone very well and they basically gave him away this winter. I don't think we've seen a very high success rate on kind of Cuban prospects. We've seen a, a higher success rate on kind of Cuban veterans ex- until we got to Tomas and Castillo anyway. Right. <clears throat> and so I suppose uh, what are the, now the what are what are now what are the course of action? I mean, you've 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 spent uh, Monday or Tuesday, I guess, looking uh, for places to which the Red Sox might trade Castillo. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the logical conclusion here, right? If they don't have any playing time for this guy and they owe him fifty-five million dollars for the next five years, uh, and they don't have future playing time for him because the hope would be that you know Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley, and Andrew Penintendi are their outfield of the future. Um, then there's not really a spot for him in Boston, and having a $10 million fifth outfielder is, is not really in anyone's best interest. So a trade would be the logical outcome, and the problem is since they don't have playing time for him, it's difficult for them to increase his trade value on their own. So you'd normally like to not sell super low on a guy you just gave $70 million to, but they don't really have a choice if they're not going to play him. So I think at this point you kind of survey the game and say, okay, who could use a center fielder? With a little bit of upside, uh, who likes, you know, this kind of player, so it's gonna have to be a team that at least puts some value on, on outfield defense or center field defense, and is okay with a guy who's probably never gonna hit for any power because he hits so many balls on the ground. Um, so you're kind of looking for a team that needs like a leadoff hitter, or a potential leadoff hitter anyway, um, and has some money to spend or a bad contract to send back. And I think when you look around the league, the Padres are Pretty clearly the obvious fit. Uh, you know, there are a few other teams you can stretch and say maybe it could work, but San Diego is the team that, like, if you were going to drop a deal, it would it would be with the Padres. And who who would the Padres send back to the Red Sox? Well, Melvin Upton kind of works as like a good contract offset if you're just going to do a small trade and say, look, we're just going to basically dump Castillo's money. Um, but I think that there is at least some chance that if uh, Dave Dombrowski and, and AJ Preller want to do something big. There might be room for a bigger trade here in the sense of like the Red Sox, uh, obviously, uh, would love to remove Pablo Sandoval from their team, another guy who they had buyer's remorse on, mm-hmm. um, and it's someone that the Padres were interested in signing. The Red Sox basically outbid the Padres for Sandoval, and the Padres don't really have a third baseman. Um, so if you looked at it and said, okay, look, the, the Red Sox have two players they don't want, the Padres could use both of them, uh, and the the Padres have pitching to trade. The Red Sox could probably use another starting pitcher. Um, so you look at it and say, it's not that hard to think of a structure of a deal where it's Rusny Castillo and Pablo Sandoval going to San Diego and someone like James Shields going to Boston. The problem is that like that's a lot of money for the Padres to take on. So even if the the Padres also set back Upton, they're still not going to make that move, and you'd have to add in other pieces, um, or the, the Red Sox would have to pick up some money. But I think there's at least... The concept of a trade that sends Sandoval and Castillo to San Diego for Shields, Upton, and, and you know some amount of cash or prospects trading places in order to even things out. What's the advantage? What's the advantage for the Red Sox of having Upton as opposed to Castillo? Well, I think so. With Upton, you have a guy who's probably more willing to accept his bench role. So mm-hmm. I think this is one thing that like maybe as outsiders we're probably not as privy to. But if you have a you know a fifth outfielder who's like actively unhappy and mm-hmm. kind of um, 
annoying to be around, that's probably a problem for the rest of the players on his team, and they would like to see him go away. Where with a guy like Upton, who at this point in his career probably knows he's not good enough to start on a contender, um, he's more likely to say, you know what, I'm the fifth outfielder, at least I have a job, I'm making good money, I'm not going to make too much noise, I'm at the end of my career anyway. Uh, so I think you're probably... Uh, getting rid of some potential negative clubhouse uh, influences if you swap Castillo and Upton, uh, given the role that they would have for those two. Now, Upton was uh, was actually pretty good in about a half season's worth of play last year. Or at least I should say he produced quite a bit in the way of wins relative to his plate appearances. Is uh, what What is real and what is not real about that production? Well, I mean, a lot of the the value is based on a 350 BABIP, which has not necessarily been uh, something Upton has um, shown he can sustain recently. Uh, and I think the the most obvious thing we can say about Melvin Upton is he swings and misses a lot. This is a center fielder with average at best power and a 30% strikeout rate. Uh, that puts him in like the Drew Stubbs class of players, like the center fielders who strike out at 30% of the time. Uh, generally aren't very good. Actually, <laughs> it's, get... it's not a, it's not, uh, much different, is it, than, than the Chris Young skill set? Except Chris Young has power, right? So, okay, like, yeah. if, you, if you took yeah. Chris Young's power away, you'd have Melvin Upton. Right. Uh, so, so the low not, power, not high strikeouts, you're suggesting yeah. that those two, those two skills together not, are, are not, 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 yeah. If you're yeah. gonna be a low power, high strikeout guy, you better be as Andrelton Simmons in the field or something. Right, right. I suppose you would need to, to augment it in You could, you could, how did Billy Hamilton produce like a three-win season a couple of years ago? Because he was the best base runner in baseball by a huge margin and a plus-20 center fielder. <laughs> so that's what you have to do to be yeah. if you're going to contribute. Yeah. And you know. Upton strikes out even more than Hamilton, so he has a little bit more power. But um, the, like Upton has serious contact problems and is not uh, not a good hitter. And so I think realistically at this point in his career, he belongs on the bench as like a part-time fill-in. I suppose I could glean this information merely from looking at his profile at Fangraphs.com, but what happened yeah, we're, to... we're watching baseball. Yeah, right. No, no, but what happened... What is the difference between this version of, of Melvin slash B.J. Upton and the one who was producing three to five win seasons, you know, as a, in his mid-20s? Well, power is the main thing. So okay. when he was younger, he struck out like 25% of the time and... And hit for a decent amount of power. So, you know, when you hit for a decent amount of power, pitchers will pitch around you, and then you can draw some walks. Um, so, I think what his peak season, he drew like 15% walk rate or something like that, and he was up around 10 for most of his prime. Um, and he, you know, he hit 20 home runs a year. So, you combine uh, 20 homers, 40 steals, a bunch of walks, and, and good defense in center field, you can get away with striking out a lot. The problem is the power went away, so the walks went away, uh, the defense declined, and the strikeouts went up. So that's a bad combination. Yeah, and he was, I, yeah, that's interesting because he was, I mean, he was good in in those in his, as a twenty year old. He he produced over he produced almost twenty five wins during that period. Yeah, for a good stretch there, he was basically Mike Cameron or you know a player along those lines of like a, a very good uh, borderline star center fielder, and then 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 he went Andrew Jones. Yeah, that's not, yeah. Well, that's not so great. So, uh, so, so that Castillo to to the Padres is a likely scenario. As is, I, I would I wouldn't call it likely. I would call it logical. But I think there's a lot of logical things the Padres haven't done this offseason. And then you also include, I believe, both Milwaukee and Philadelphia, who are in you know roughly the same position, I suppose, in the, in the sense that they are in a, um, it's this year, the 2016 season, and maybe 2017 as well, or maybe. Maybe 2017, certainly, where they're, they are positioned just to essentially observe players on their team to see who does and doesn't have talent. Yeah, they're totally rebuilding, and uh, probably at, at the stage they are, I think the Brewers have at least more accepted this than the Phillies, it, that their real asset is playing time, where you can say, look, we have 600 at-bats, we can give to guys with flaws and some upside and see what we have, and we can maybe find a Ben Zobrist, and, and we're going to you know, give a whole bunch of shots to guys who can't get playing time on a contender because they're not good enough. But we, out of the seven or eight or nine guys we run out there, we might find one who, or maybe even two, that turn into really good players for us. And this is how the Astros found Dallas Keuchel a couple of years ago. Um, and occasionally you you find guys like this. And so I think the, the Brewers have kind of done a good job of filling out their roster with players like that. The Phillies a little bit less so, I think. Uh, but Rusny Castillo could be... 
uh, you know, an expensive version of that kind of player where you take on a contract and say, we're going to find out what we have here. And, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, but in the Phillies case, they have money to burn and they don't have talent. And this is one way to use money to get talent. Right. Or at least potential talent. Right. And the Brewers, well, the Brewers, well, I guess they have one fewer now since, uh, who was it that got hit? Right. Reimer Liriano. Oh, that's, that did not look good. No, no, yeah. he broke. Yeah. Uh, he literally broke his face, or got his yeah. face broken, I guess. What by a Matt West fastball? Uh, Matt yeah. West, I believe. Right, 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 square where you don't want to get hit. Yeah, right. Uh, orbital, orbital bone. Is that what uh, it is? That's an eye. Yeah. Yeah, it can get hit. Yeah, but you don't want to get hit in the orbital, do you? Uh, I don't think you really want to get hit in any of your eye. <laughs> any areas. of your face. Yeah. Your face. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's so they have one fewer outfield, but they still have they still have a lot of they still have a lot of off, outfield options who they need to essentially sort through at this point because because they they certainly have Santana and of course Ryan Braun is still there and then right. you have, those two guys are locked in as your starters in the corners and and they don't have as many options in center field. You're basically looking at like Keon Broxton and Kirk Newenheis and but there's also uh, Brett Phillips and Michael yeah. Reed. Well, Phillips is further away and potentially could be a corner guy after they trade Braun. Okay. Well, all right. Do you think Castillo? I mean, Castillo is or isn't? Well, he considers himself more major league ready. It, it would appear by what you're saying, but perhaps uh, it's just a question of whether a major league team feels the same way. Well, I think any major league team acquiring him is going to acquire him because they think we can give this guy 600 at bats and see what he can do this year. You're not going to acquire him to play him on the bench or put him in the minor leagues. You're going to say, look, we believe in the defense. We think this is you know one of the better defensive outfielders out there, and we're just going to see if he can hit. Just well enough to be, you know, a, a decent player, maybe like a poor man's Kevin Kiermeyer. That's kind of what you're hoping for, is like, okay offense, uh, or, you know, Juan Lagares before he got hurt, basically. That's kind of what you're hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're gonna stick him in center field and see what he can do. So let's talk about, uh, Hyun Soo Kim. Kim, uh, as you said, was a two year, seven million dollar contract, something like that? Yes, I think that's right. Alright. And he's had a, uh, he's had a rough spring training. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what was what when when the Orioles acquired him? What was sort of the prevailing idea about Kim's role? What it would be? Uh, I think they brought him in to be basically the starting left fielder. I mean, they wanted a you know high contact uh, option to play the field, and and they saw him as a guy who could come in and kind of provide something they didn't have as a as a regular outfielder. Okay. Now what's uh there's a, there's a, obviously this is there's this refrain that one oughtn't pay too much attention to. Um, to spring training stats, yeah, um, is it is what we have here an instance of the Orioles paying attention to spring training stats unduly, or is there a certain amount to which you should pay attention to them? I mean, he's only struck out what six times in nearly fifty plate appearances. That doesn't seem that bad. Yeah, so I think this is one of the things that we don't necessarily know, but certainly when you don't have a major league track record to go off of, the team is going to put more emphasis on spring training performance than they would otherwise. So we see this a lot with rookies and guys who are trying to earn their way onto a team. And obviously with Kim as an international guy, uh, where, you know, the data is less valuable or less reliable, um, I think the Orioles are looking at it as a little bit of an unknown. So the only thing they have to go off of in their minds is what they saw this spring when he was, you know, trying to win a job or trying to win a spot in the lineup, and he performed quite poorly. So I think if he was Adam Jones and he was having this spring training, they wouldn't care. They would say, look, we have a lot of evidence of what Adam Jones is. Uh, you know, this is a, a small sample compared to the larger amount of data we have. With Kim, this represents a larger portion of the data, uh, or at least the data that major league teams would use. I do think, on the other hand, Almost every hitter who's come over from Asia, uh, dating all the way back to Ichiro, but going through with, you know, uh, Akinori or Iwomura and a bunch of the guys who came over five, ten years ago. I remember, uh, similar stories to almost all of these guys because they don't, they're not physically impressive athletes. Uh, even Ichiro is a, you know, a really athletic, fast player. Uh, I think his first spring training in Seattle, Lou Pinello was publicly quoted as telling the reporters that he just hoped he could be Brett Butler. That was like his best case scenario. Um, and this was like the team's manager. This wasn't like a <laughs> scout crushing him. This is like the guy who was going to pencil him into the lineup. Uh, and so I think it has been pretty common to underestimate what these guys can do in major league games uh, because their kind of spray the ball contact style doesn't look that impressive in spring training, especially with the balls flying all over the yard and every, you know, uh, for a power guy who can't hit a curveball is blasting fastballs everywhere. Uh, those guys look really impressive. And so you have 
you know, uh, non prospects hitting 15 home runs in tiny parks. And then you're like, wait, well, this little guy, uh, he can't do anything. He's hitting 150 with no power. But then when you actually get into major league games where guys are throwing curveballs and contact actually matters, uh, I think guys like him end up performing better than we would think based on their spring training records. Right. And I think, well, the most recent in, uh, case, and this would support Kim certainly is the, uh, is Shungo Gung, right? He, uh, I don't I forget uh, right now what his, what his spring was like, but I didn't know. Ba- it was bad. It yeah. was bad. Okay. And, and, yeah. and he certainly wasn't confirmed as a, as a major league caliber player, even maybe until midseason, but the, the final results were fantastic. Yeah. I think the first half of spring training, he looked pretty terrible. He didn't look good defensively. There was a lot of questions whether the, the pirates just wasted their money. Um, and you know, like, what's this guy going to be if he's not a good defender and he can't really hit? Uh, you know, there was even some talk of like, um, they didn't want to play him too regularly early in the season uh, because they thought he might get exposed by opposing team scouting reports, and that was one of the reasons why he had started off the season as a utility player. He played like once or twice a week. I think he maybe played like five or ten games in April. Uh, but by the middle of the season, this was like the best rookie in the National League, and I think uh, um, there is definitely a tendency to potentially uh, put too much emphasis on the spring training performances of, of these guys who come over and, and don't look great in spring training. And I think um, depending on what the Orioles decide to do, if they actually stick with Kim, I wouldn't be shocked if he ended up, you know, uh, being at least an okay player worth three and a half, four million dollars, whatever they're going to pay him this year. Right. Yeah. Just looking over briefly uh, for Gong, his, his most, uh, the spot at which he started most often in the lineup in April of last year uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what the mode is, but it looks pretty close to seven or eight, you know, somewhere, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. <clears throat> and then if you look in September, he was like almost exclusively hitting uh, fourth and fifth. Yeah. Which I, I mean, they realized by the, about the all-star break that he was pretty good. Mm. Well, okay. So, so the, what do you think will ultimately happen with Kim? That's hard to say. I mean, like one of the fascinating backstories here is Dan Duquette's really bizarre, uh, history of international signings. So even back when he ran the Red Sox, you know, 15 years ago, there was a lot of money that the Red Sox spent on guys who never appeared in the big leagues. And, um, they, you know, I think Baseball America did a really good story a couple of years ago on how there was even some question about whether there was impropriety, impropriety of like maybe Duquette was signing guys who he knew wasn't, weren't going to be big league players in order to get advantages with certain agents or certain teams in order to try and get discounts on other players. And so, um, I think with any other team, you'd probably just say, yeah, the Reds or the, the Orioles will just, um, you know, they're just going to overlook spring training and go forward with their investment and see what they have. Uh, but with Duquette, I think we don't, we don't really know what he's going to do. There's, it's just such a, a unique backstory to his international signings that I think it's at least in the realm of possibility that we could see him try and send him back to Korea and say, yeah, we didn't want this guy after all. Also, isn't, isn't Duquette largely responsible for the point at which the Orioles were what temporarily banned from from yeah. Korea. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, it's I don't remember all of the details uh, so well that I would want to like misspeak them on the podcast. But I would encourage anyone who's interested in the story to like Google Dan Duquette international signings because there's some really fascinating stories about uh, his history, in, especially in Asia. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Also, I believe at one point Duquette was responsible for putting together the. Uh, Israeli national team. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I think that's true. Or maybe he was helped. With, there was a domestic league there with which he was helping. One or the other. Mm-hmm. I don't have all the facts. Let's talk. Uh, we did mention buyer's remorse earlier on. Uh, buyer's remorse as a concept uh, seems also uh, a uh, sensible one to invoke when <laughs> when looking at a recent deal or a recent situation in which the Seattle Mariners uh, waived waived released Jesus Montero. Montero. That's true. It is unless, she, unless his sister got waved. <laughs> yeah, that's the, right. That's yeah. the feminine applies there. Yeah. Jesus Montero. Yeah. They waved him? Released him? They, they waved did. him. Uh, yeah, I think they waved him. Sure, they waved him. And then there were, what, the, the, the Blue and Jays. And they waved him. goodbye, as the, the Blue, Blue Jays, Jays said yeah. hello. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, the Blue Jays had done for more than one. Seattle Mariners player. They they are collecting failed 2013 Mariners. Yeah, that's right, because they also have, what, Michael Saunders? And Justin Smoke. And Justin Smoke. And there were a couple yeah. other players. I they think. just got rid of Steve Delabar. Okay. Not necessarily the same hype prospect, but someone who was on that team a few years ago, and, and then the Toronto revived him. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Is it is it just Toronto attempting is it just are they just attempting to prove to the Mariners that they had a good team that they just they screwed up somehow? I think it's not just Toronto. I think it was Brian Cashman or it could have been maybe it might have been Mark Shapiro when he was still in Cleveland. Some GM last year made some comment after acquiring a Mariner player, a uh, former Mariner player the, I think it might have been uh, Ben Sharing connection. Now that I think about it, maybe when he got Mike Carp, uh, said like, "Look, you know, Seattle has a history of not developing players very well. We think there's a good player here that we can uh, we can do better with than they did." And it was like basically they were publicly admitting that their bet was the Mariners' player development staff stinks. <laughs> right, right. And there might be which, some... it, which it, it really did. Yeah. <laughs> there might be some public. Okay, the uh, Jesus Montero. I think that uh, you, know, you wrote a, a piece to this point. No, of course. Jesus Matero for Michael Pineda was a was a a, a a deeply compelling trade. Yeah. Right. Two young, talented prospects um, with some warts. People say that in scouting talk, right? He's got a, some warts, uh, but yeah, also incredible promise. Pineda's warts were more pronounced at the time of the trade, um, in that like uh, I think it was pretty well. Uh, he had had a lot of arm problems, and pitchers with arm problems early in their career often continue to have arm problems, so his was pretty well known. Uh, Pineda was basically, uh, the Mariners were betting against him staying healthy by trading him away at the point they did. Montero's was a little bit more uh, unknown because he hadn't gotten to the big leagues and had a lot of success yet. Right, and he had, it seems like he, what, what, what was the situation with Pineda at the time? There was, no, there was no real place in the major league roster for him, maybe. For Montero? For Montero, yeah, sorry. Uh, well, I think the, the reality is the Yankees knew he couldn't catch, <laughs> or at least, um, were aware of his deficiencies behind the plate. Mm-hmm. And they could have rushed him into catching, except they, I think they knew that would have, um, been exposed as a, as not a real career path for him. So they sold him to the only GM in baseball who didn't care about defense and would stick Jesus Montero behind the plate. Right. And Jesus Montero as a catcher, how did it turn out? Really quite awful. If I seem yeah. to remember, not that I'm a scout, he had a, he had a st- uh, curiously long arm path when yes. throwing down to second. Is that right? Right. Yes. He, so he has a strong arm. So if you just like go strictly by arm strength, then he can catch. Mm-hmm. But it's a, a very slow release and bear, really bad footwork and terrible framing and right. bad pitch calling and pitchers hate throwing to him. So, um, so there's nothing. It's basically everything besides right. throwing the ball, which also takes him too long. Right. He was bad at. And he's also kind of a big dude who you wouldn't... He, yeah, he, I mean, he was lost a lot of weight, but he used to be just gigantic. He was a bowling ball behind the plate. Right. Um, okay, so so now what's... Uh, I guess what happened to Montero? He didn't he didn't fit a catcher, and he just he ended up not hitting enough for, for first base. Or anywhere, really. Yeah. I think his career WRC Plus is 92, which is like uh, good enough if you're a shortstop or center fielder, but not good enough if you're anything else, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it works as if you're a catcher, but he wasn't a catcher, um, or a shortstop or a center fielder for that matter. Um, but yeah, I think Montero is um, kind of in the uh, Delman Young school of prospects of like guys who got uh, a lot of hype put on them early because they were physically mature players at young ages and then never developed beyond that. So like Delman Young and Jesus Montero at 18 were as good as they are at 26 or 27 or however old Montero is now, 25. Um, you know, like you look pretty good if you're, uh, you know, a 17-year-old in Double A or 18-year-old in Double A, and you're holding your own against high-quality pitching. But if you're basically done developing, uh, that doesn't help you when you get to the big leagues. Okay, so compare and contrast. Uh, this is, might be interesting to nobody. Compare and contrast Jesus Montero with Jeff Clement. Uh, I think Montero uh, is probably. Uh, Going to have the same amount of future value in the major leagues as Clement. <laughs> he was retired from baseball. Yes, I okay. think that. Like, I mean, you know, certainly the Blue Jays have some history of fixing guys like this, and Edwin Encarnacion is um, actually a name I invoked in writing about Montero even before the Blue Jays that were announced to have claimed him on waivers. Uh, I think we could look at it and be like, look, it's not impossible that Montero turns into Encarnacion 2.0. He's clearly a DH. That's the best spot for him if he learns how to turn on the ball a bit more and lay off sliders low and away and. Uh, you know, improve his command of the strike zone, he could turn into a decent hitter. But it, uh, it's unlikely, one, and he's such a bad base runner that he would have to really, really hit to be valuable. More likely his, his value is something like the recent version of Billy Butler, 
which isn't very good either. It's not very good. The yeah. I know that I because I wrote about uh, I had read about Jose Bautista for our positional power rankings, um, and I know that so I know this about him. I know I don't know if it's the case with Encarnacion, but looking at a combination of Bautista's heat maps, his strike zone heat maps, uh, and also his uh, spray charts, it's it it's rather transparent. You know when when examining those two pieces of information what Batista's approach is, right? And essentially it's all, all, all the time. Yeah, right. I mean he he's looking he's looking middle he's looking up middle you in, know yeah. yeah middle in, up and in. And he's and he's only pulling the ball. I don't I don't know if Encarnacion's approach is the same. Yeah, basically. But the, I mean I assume that uh, I would not be shocking, I guess, if 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 you were to find uh, Montero doing a similar thing soon. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Blue Jays keep him. I, mean, I will note that, like, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Blue Jays pass him through waivers again and realize, like, hey, look, we were basically one of the last teams to have waiver priority on him. Um, National League teams probably aren't going to claim him because he can't play the field. So let's try and sneak him through, stash him in AAA, and just have him be insurance in case Edwin Encarnacion is hurt again, which Encarnacion does get hurt with some frequency. Uh, so that's my guess is what they're actually doing here. But if they keep Montero on the big league roster, uh, and have him actually play occasionally as part of some weird platoon with Colabello and Justin Smoke at first base, um, or Encarnacion playing first with Montero DHs, or however they would do it. Um, then I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Montero switch to a much more pull-heavy approach. I mean, uh, one of the things that scouts liked about him as a minor leaguer is that he had significant power to right field and center field, and that was one of the reasons the Mariners liked him, because that's a, a more... Uh, friendly place to hit the ball in the safe field field uh, rather than trying to pull the ball to left field. But in Toronto, right-handed pull power works really well, and I think they would not uh, They would probably suggest to Montero that he abandon trying to hit the ball to all fields and just try and hit it really far to left. Yeah, I see that I've, there seems to be um, there seems to be times when pulling the ball for for any sort of player. I mean, it, it seems as though sometimes as a player gets older. Uh, it's not uncommon for him to pull the ball so he can re- retain his power. But in other times I see it when a player starts to pull the ball, that's considered to be a virtue as well. Is that – because that happened last year with Bryce Harper. He started going yeah. more to his pull power. So I think it depends on how much power you have. So okay. if you're Ben Revere, pulling the ball probably not so great. Okay. Uh, you need to spray the ball around the field and not be shiftable, um, and you need to uh, you know kind of hit them where they aren't. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're uh, a guy who can hit the ball 500 feet, do that instead. Just yeah, but like, but Chris Bryant doesn't Chris Bryant isn't he sort of known for his all fields approach? Yeah, I mean, there's a, so I think a lot of uh, really good hitters uh, have both, right? So like Joey Votto and Adrian mm-hmm. Gonzalez, and uh, I think uh, uh, Miguel Cabrera. There's some like some of the best hitters in baseball can hit the ball really hard to all fields. Most guys can't do that, like, and I don't think Casey Montero can do that, uh, which is one of the reasons why scouts were really high on him. There was some thought that he might be one of these guys who could hit the ball really hard everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, more likely, he will have to choose to hit the ball really hard to left field rather than hitting the ball kind of sort of hard everywhere. Okay, so that so I see that's the difference, and that, and that makes sense because I did really invoke like the guys with the most power. I mean, Bryce Harper like, <laughs> yeah, like famously yeah. has like a violent swing that with yeah. which he's able to make contact a lot. And I think like we see like even this changes. Chris Davis used to have monstrous opposite field power, and he's moved more towards a pull pull approach the last few years, probably as he gets older and realizes that he can't hit the ball as hard as he used to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, does, does Jesus Montero, last question, does Jesus Montero, that in addition to there being no such thing as a pitching prospect, there's also no such thing as a hitting prospect, too? Yeah, there are just no prospects. There's just no prospects. Yeah, prospects are myths. No, That's I think, true. like, uh, one of the interesting things is, um, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is the easiest thing to scout in all of baseball, no matter what the position is, is velocity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you just stick a radar gun up and be like, this guy throws 97, and now you have an interesting and useful data point uh, in, like, three pitches or four pitches. It takes, like, almost no time to learn mm-hmm. something about the player. If a guy hits 97, it's not by accident. Yeah, right. He's not going to, like, suddenly start sitting 87, 88 unless he's hurt. <laughs> so, like, you've learned something about him on, like, the first pitch he threw of the game, where with hitters, it takes a much longer period of time to learn something about them. So... I think with pitchers, we have attrition risk and, and health risk, and with hitters, we have um, the long gestation period before we can actually consider the information we've gained useful. Right. Yeah, I mean, I suppose with batters, the, uh, the, the exit velocity could be something slightly akin to 
to uh, a pitcher's velocity, right? Yeah, but it doesn't matter nearly as much. I mean, exit yeah. velocity for a hitter is like dramatically magnitude, uh, order magnitude less important than than pitcher velocity uh, or fastball velocity for a pitcher. There's a lot of guys who hit the ball hard, like Mark Thumbo, who are bad baseball players because it's hitting the ball hard is just a small part of offensive success, where throwing the ball hard is a huge part of pitching success. Right. It's good to be able to do it. Right. And there's and it does seem as though that uh, there's a threshold below which it's difficult to to remain a major league pitcher. Like if you're if you're not able to top, and I know you know there are obviously going to be exceptions to this, but if you're not if you're not able to to, to hit hit 89 or 90, then um, then your chances of being a starter at least would seem to be um, challenged. Yeah, and I think that's kind of maybe true at all. Also, in like in the threshold's lower as a hitter, but like I think Billy Hamilton had an average exit velocity of like 80 miles an hour last year or something, mm-hmm. and the next lowest was like 83. <laughs> and, uh, so it seems like if you can't hit the ball harder than 80 miles an hour, you probably aren't a big league hitter either. That's a, that's a great uh, in a sort of still unplumbed, still underexplored area. Uh, I know that uh, Craig Edwards did a piece a couple months ago, I think, on exit velocity and its relationship to isolated slugging. And as yeah. you mentioned. There's a lot more to the to the total player package for for a batter um, yeah. that, that doesn't you're not concerned about with pitching, but and, but that sort of that that idea that there is um, you know that that relationship exists between between exit velocity and you know what what a guy's batted ball profile overall looks like. Yeah, I mean hitting the ball hard is good, but it's not the only thing. Right, I know, yeah. Dave. Yeah. yeah. Although the chances that it, right if you start if you are uh, recording high exit velocities, there's a uh, there's a pretty strong chance, right, that pitchers will stop throwing you f- uh, fastballs in the middle. Yeah, they'll be scared of you at least. Yeah. Right, and that's good for uh, getting on base. Only if you know enough not to swing. You know, you can't swing. Yeah. You know, stop swinging. Yeah. I had Rob Arthur on the podcast recently. Yeah, I, I saw. Yeah, and he uh, he thought at one point because he I think he's done some good work with exit velocity. Yeah, and uh, he thought that using exit velocity in conjunction with some other indicators, he had cracked projections that he had disc- he had had like a, you know, like an R squared of 0.9 or something. And then he realized that uh, he just effed up. Yeah, that's that's often when we like we found it. Oh wait. Yeah, we did. Yeah, <laughs> he's you know he's a uh, he's a nice guy to talk to. Yeah, I like Rob. Yeah, he's great. He's got uh, he's very very modest about his abilities, and is also mm-hmm. he's able to. Um, to talk intelligently about a number of different subjects. That's that's a useful thing to have. It is, yeah. It was great having him on. Anyway, okay, you're done. Uh, you're done. You've, Thanks. Uh, you've fulfilled your obligation. Oh, listen, hey, update. Quick claim deed, at least in the state of Maine, um, not as frightening as I made it sound last week, uh, provided that one is able to secure title insurance. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So good it's, job. I, Apparently it's it's actually pretty common. I don't know if it's maybe because of the age of some of the properties. Also, of course, and I think as you realize, uh, when you're when you're buying properties that have been foreclosed upon, sometimes the only sort of deed you can acquire is a quick claim deed. But yeah. I don't think you know what sort of deed you have. Yeah, I think we have a normal normal deed. <laughs> a normal deed. Nor- normal deed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, that's good. It just says. Normal Official deed. term, yeah. Normal deed. At the top of the page. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's good. Not unusual in any way. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll check out the Winston-Salem Registry of Deeds uh, as soon okay. as we uh, as soon as we've done. All right. Well, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com, the same editor who forces not just me but a number of our other writers to write god-awfully long position positional whatever – Power right. rankings. Ugh, this is real music. They're I'm over. Car- uh, they're over. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.